Job a contemporary of Abraham said this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he shall stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me here. Word of the Lord. I have a unique friend who's very gifted. For 40 years, he sat in his office counseling folks from the Word of God and encouraging their lives, urging them to trust the Lord and obey and throw in their lot with Jesus. He's also a gifted man who has many friends. And out of his love for others, he spent a lot of time with the homosexual community in the major urban area that's around him, going to meetings and engaging them by love and interaction about gospel Christianity. I was talking to him one day, and he said, Eric, our culture is dying. It was a jarring quote from him. I went away from that thinking, what we need is resurrection hope. Again on Friday, I visited my uncle in hospice, just asking the Lord that he might use me to encourage him. I left treasuring again resurrection hope that belongs to everyone who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior. In 2021, I had a good friend. He and his wife got COVID. He's a peer. His wife got very sick. She was in the hospital. We wondered if she was going to live. While she's in the midst of that and began to turn a little corner, her mother dies. While she's recovering a few weeks later, his mother dies. And my friend was feeling the cumulative weight of several things pounding on his heart at once. What he needed in that moment was resurrection hope. There are a million things in a broken world that bring us to the end of ourselves. And we say, where does our security lie? We need resurrection hope. I have a friend who's broken herself for 40 years in service to her corporation. And she has looked forward to this moment so eagerly, wanting to now retire. And she plotted out a date, and she was all set. And she comes to the spring of 2022 and opens up her portfolio and looks at her 401k and says, Oh, I don't want to work anymore. But look at this moment. I was supposed to retire. Oh, we need to secure our fortunes in resurrection hope. Maybe you're here this morning and you have wayward children or grandchildren. You do anything to uh, change the trajectory of their lives and curry their interest in Jesus Christ. They seem to be indifferent to the things of God. What we need is a word of resurrection hope that would bring life 
out of death. Maybe grief is cutting you in half this morning and you can't imagine taking one more step without your loved one and what you need this morning is a word of resurrection, hope. There are many broken experiences in our cursed world that bring us time and again to what D.A. Carson said, and I've said it before to you, this is nothing that a good resurrection can't fix. I love that quote. And that's the glory of resurrection hope. Maybe you're there this morning. I'm glad you're here because we all need it, and it is available in the person of Jesus Christ our Lord. Come with me to John chapter 11. This glorious story of the raising of Lazarus. Well, I want to do two things going two different directions this morning. First, I want to make three observations that will help us enter this story in John chapter 11. And secondly, this story will barrel down on our hearts in four different ways. And we need to bring our hearts out to the Lord and let his word wafe over our hearts and shape our hearts. Now, the story encompasses 45 verses, all of which I will not read to you this morning. But may I ask you the favor of reading these verses this week? John 11, 1 through 45. Let me get us started with a few. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. The village of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love... Is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Hear the word of the Lord. Now this story, first the report in verses 1 through 4, then the discussion with his disciples, verses 5 through 16, that I read to you. And then you get to 
Martha's interaction with Jesus as he walks into Bethany. Then you get to, uh, in the midst of Martha's interaction, of course, you get to John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Hear the word of the Lord. Then he goes on to interact with Mary, who comes out to him. They go to the grave. Of course, you have John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. We'll come back to that. You have Jesus being upset, verse 33. He was deeply moved, verse 38. He was deeply moved, and he gets to the tomb. It's there that Martha takes up the honor of her brother, who she felt like four days in would have a rotting corpse. And she said, whatever you do, don't take the lid off of that grave. No, he, he would carry an odor uh, right now. And Jesus said, you remove the stone. And then you get to the dramatic, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. Verse 45, and many believed. Now, hear the word of the Lord. Let's think of three observations first. This miracle is a twofold miracle of resuscitation plus a gain of function, ability to walk in grave clothes. Now, this is indeed a resurrection from the dead. It's a resuscitation back to life, not unlike the widow of Nain's son or Jairus' daughter. They were dead. They were resuscitated back to life. Now, this is going to be different than the resurrection from the dead of Jesus and different from the noble hope of our own resurrection tied to the resurrection of Jesus in that when we are raised, we will be raised immortal with a body fashioned like unto his body, not thereafter to die again. That would be dissimilar to this resurrection. In fact, uh, as I was pondering this passage, I wondered what they were feeling and thinking about at the second funeral for Lazarus. I bet their grief was different, don't you? Because they knew of this noble hope of the resurrection now in a way that they couldn't get before. So the first part of the resurrection is, uh, the miracle is that, miracle number one, he's raised to life. But miracle number two, and this is where he had to appear like, you know, uh, a zombie in some weird movie as he's, uh, they didn't embalm people in the first century. What they did is they wrapped them in cloths, uh, um, kind of white gauze looking stuff. And then they took uh, uh, spices and they would uh, uh, soak what they had wrapped the body in, in these spices, so that as their flesh rotted, it wouldn't carry a stringent odor. And so he's all wrapped up, bound, he's been spiced up, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth! And so he not only is resuscitated back to life, but somehow he's given the ability to walk. And so Jesus, you get down to verse 44, unbind him and let him go. By the way, those are wonderful, wonderful words. I want you to know if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, someday, someday, the latches of death will be released and we will be unbound and let go 
and be raised from the dead. Now, what's very clear from the passage is Lazarus got sick and he died. This is not a, well, you know, they thought he was dead and they put him in there and then he, no, he died. Or there's some, I wish I could think of it, or maybe I wish I could think of it. There's some crazy line from a Monty Python movie where they talk about, yes, he's very dead. He's, He's very, very, very dead. You know, what does that even mean? You're either dead or you're not dead. Lazarus was very dead. But what's important to recognize here is that he was very dead and he couldn't have been loved anymore. Don't miss that. John eleven three. Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's the language that Mary and Martha used to send this word. But notice John in his narrative says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So here you have Christ's great love for Lazarus. Here you have a terrible disease bringing his death. You say, now wait a minute. You can't have both of those in the same building. It's either you're ravaged with a disease or Christ loves you. It can't be you have a hard disease and he loves you. It can't be because those are incompatible. No, not to Jesus. Jesus loved Lazarus very much. And Lazarus got an awful disease. One of the tragedies of our broken world and facing our bodies which suffer demise and we face disease. One of the tragedies is that in the midst of it, you can begin to, begin to think like Job's friends and think, well, God must not care for me. Because if God really cared for me, I wouldn't have this disease. Well, now, wait a minute. Who does the text accent that Christ loves? Lazarus. And it's accented more than once. Who is it in the text that has the disease? Lazarus. You say, Eric, I'm facing a disease and it it doesn't feel like God loves me. It feels like God doesn't love me. That God's against me. Don't let those thoughts crowd around your heart. Because there's nothing incompatible about facing life as it is in a broken world and being deeply loved and cared for by Jesus Christ. And don't you ever forget how this story ends. Now, the second thing is in Jewish lore, second observation, in the event of death, the soul hung around the body for three days before departing. Now, the rabbis taught uh, that the soul hovered above the body. Where they got this, who knows? It's not in the Old Testament, but they began to teach that the spirit leaves the body and it, it, it'll hang around for three days. Now, one of the puzzling things about this story is Christ loves Lazarus. He gets word that he's sick, and what's he do? He delays in coming. You scratch your head and you say, what's that? If, if I send word, hey, I need help, get over here, I don't want you to wait for four days and get over here. If I didn't need help, I wouldn't have asked you to come. Get over here now. That's, that's, that's our, 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 no, Jesus didn't do that. In fact, according to verse 17, already he had been in the tomb for four days. Ha. Huh. 
Now, they didn't embalm. They buried them as soon as they die. He's in there four days. So nobody could make the Jewish argument, oh, well, he wasn't really dead. His soul was just up there, and he just had a good afternoon and woke up and came back to life. No, it was beyond the bounds of when the soul left, according to the first century rabbis and their teaching. It was past the Jewish sense of no return. Then Christ shows up and everything changes. By the way, this may give us some insight into the delay and why he would have waited. Why not come at once? Well, Christ wanted to make sure that everybody would understand that this was an act of God demonstrating something by himself, and it would bring them to this whole notion of, I am the resurrection and the life. Because it's one thing for Jesus to say those words, but after Lazarus walks out the tomb, it's another thing that they understood about what those words meant. Third observation. In knowing Jesus, we are released from the curse of death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. God made the world and it was perfect. And we walked away from God and broke his law and went our own way and the curse came, and with the curse came death. And the wages of sin is death. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 note that while we live in our mortal flesh, death bears down upon us and creates fear. And it's why Jesus took up our weak mortal flesh as the immortal God and gave himself up for us so we could be delivered from the fear of death and trusting in him since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery Gary Larson that old far side cartoonist one of my favorite cartoons that he ever had you have to have dark humor to appreciate him I suppose but uh you know, it's got these guys, uh, the, this, the Grim Reapers watching TV, and uh, there's somebody at his door knocking, and the caption was, every time I sit down, somebody knocks on my door. Uh, we'll hear it again this week, probably. Someone else will die that we will hear of. This is the drill in the below world. But in knowing Jesus, there's released from the curse. To know Jesus Christ is to be released from the tyranny of being afraid of death. Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And everybody laughed. But everybody laughed because everybody knows it's going to happen. And that's a funny way to try to avoid it. But we cannot avoid that appointment. It's appointed in the man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. But in Christ, we've been delivered, and we need to carry that in our spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Peter, in preaching in Acts chapter 3, called Jesus the prince of life. I love that. John 10, 10, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, that you might really live. 
I saw a friend whose dad died since the last time I saw him, and I said, David, I'm so sorry your dad died. And he said, well, you know, it was just his time. And I said, David, every time my face is rubbed in death, it makes the prince of life, Jesus Christ, seem all the more glorious. He offers to bring us unto hope. Apart from Jesus, there is no life. There is separation from God in what the Bible calls the second death. But for the believer in Jesus, death brings us to our faith becoming sight. Or what Paul said, to be absent from the body for the believer in Jesus is to be present with our Lord. You say, Eric, what's that going to be like? The glories are quite hidden from us, but I love the psalmist. Who is it? Psalm 17, 15. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. A deep satisfaction like nothing we've ever experienced will be had. In the Old Testament, death was looked upon for the people of God who believed in the promise. Death was looked upon in a positive light. You see, Eric, positive light? I mean, so much so, it would be akin to what is said in the psalmist when he says, blessed in the sight of God is the death of his saints. They viewed being gathered to the fathers as what they called it, as a wonderful release from the curse. Is anybody else going to be glad that the body of this flesh is put down once and for all in death? Is anybody else going to be glad that there'll be no temptations as we are with our Lord? Is anybody else going to be glad that the burdens of this life will be released the day-to-day, moment-by-moment curse that we keep butting up against As far as the curse is found, it will be healed, and it will be indeed in the new heavens and the new earth, joy to the world. They called it gathered with their fathers. They had the family cave. They'd lay out the body, wrap it in spices, and the flesh would rot. After a long time, the flesh is all gone. There's just the bones there. They gather up the bones and they put it in what's called an ossuary box. On the bottom was great-great-grandpa. Then on top of great-great-grandpa, they would put grandpa. Then they would put dad. Then they would put son. Then they would put grandson. And they called it, in the box, gathered to the father's. But the people of faith looked upon that with envy, looking forward to ultimate deliverance. And even Job, who's a contemporary of Abraham, said what he did in Job 19. I know I will stand one day with reconstituted flesh, and I shall see God, my Redeemer. That's our great hope. In knowing Jesus, we are released from the curse of death. Now, we're ready to drill into the story. Let's think of the four ways that this story barrels down on our heart. This incredible piece of history brings us to four realities in the raising of Lazarus. Four conduits to our heart. Number one, Lazarus' sisters teach us how to pray and let God be God. What do you make of their prayer request? 
You say, Eric, that's rather modest. They didn't know how to pray. Oh, I'm arguing with you this morning that they knew exactly how to pray. Here's their prayer. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Is that how you pray? Is that how I pray? That's it. Simple. Let your request be made known. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 13 argues that who are we to give God any counsel on what he's supposed to do? You know what a lot of my praying is, I fear? And boy, it was a rebuke to look at this this week. My praying is all the counsel I'm giving to God on what he's supposed to do in the situations that I'm concerned about. There's none of that in Martha and Mary's prayer. It's simply, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Have you ever known exactly what God should do? Have you ever caught yourself telling God exactly what he was supposed to do in order for you, of course, to be satisfied with God? That's different than this word sent to Jesus by these sisters. By the way, it forced me to ask this question. Does our sense of a lack of answered prayer stem from our trying to persuade God to do what we think he should and then calling that prayer? Clearly, we are incapable of understanding all that God is doing and is up to. Martha's there. Control freak Martha Eric is there. Hey, hey, no, no, no. Don't take that rock out from the grave. My goodness, that'll be stinking to high heavens. You're going to embarrass our family. This is... She had no idea what God was doing. And there she was trying to air traffic control all that God was doing on the tarmac. Lord, the one whom you love is ill. John R. Rice wrote a book once about prayer. I love the title. Never read it. He said, prayer is just asking and receiving. There they were. Lord, the one whom you love is ill. And that was enough. But he knew. Let's pray more like that. Now, the second way this barrels down on our heart is this. For the believer in Jesus, death does not get the last word. How embittering death is. I love John 11. I love Matthew 28, story of the resurrection of Jesus. Because what it says is death doesn't get the final word. We're all going to die, that's true, but we hate it, and it always hits with force. They're having a discussion in verses 11 through 16, and they're concerned because Jesus is going to Bethany two miles away from Jerusalem. Last time they were in Jerusalem, everybody picked up rocks and was going to stone Jesus. They said, Jesus, you're going to get killed. What are you doing? And he talks about walking in the light. And he had just said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. When you are in the light of all God has called you to, you're in the safest place in the world. Nothing will happen to you. He says, we're going down. This is God's agenda. We're going right there without fear. It's then that Thomas articulates what he does in verse 16 that some say, oh, look at Thomas. He's a doofus. Let us go down so we can die too. Ah, look, he's a doofus. No, he's not a doofus. What Thomas is saying is, Lord, I am developing trust in you so implicit that I'm going with you wherever you're taking me. 
even if it's taking me to death. Is that you? Is that me? He was willing to go with Jesus through what Jesus was going to take them through, notwithstanding their stoning fears. Lazarus is sick, and then he dies. That's what will happen to many of us. Some of us, we're all going to die apart from the coming of Jesus in the moment. We will either die in an accident or we'll die of old age. And as long as we have vitality, isn't that how we want to go? And of course, in our sleep, and you know, we've imagined this. Uh, many of us will die because our bodies will break down, we'll get a disease, and the disease will get us. That's the drill in the blow world. In 2004, Andy had uterine cancer, my wife. She had radiation therapy afterwards. And it was bruising to her psyche and her vision of life. And she winces every time we get around cancer out of her love for others and knowing what they're going to face. And we'll get a word, so-and-so has cancer, and it'll hurt. And I'll hear her say, if not muttered out loud to me under her breath, I hate cancer. And I understand why she would say that. Not because I've experienced it. But I want you to know that cancer doesn't get the last word. Amen. You say, Eric, I'm facing something really hard. I don't care what you're facing, and I don't know what many of you are facing. I just know you're facing stuff. But whatever it is, it does not get the last word for the believer in Jesus Christ. Remember, read through to verse 45 here. Remember where this goes. Are you facing a disease? Have you lost a believing loved one to disease? Does it feel like life's worst defeat? Lazarus, come forth. And he came walking out. Death does not get the last word for the believer in Jesus Christ. Now, please note verse 35. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the New Testament speaks some of the most substantial things about God that we could ever understand. He weeps. He weeps at what we face that breaks us in half. He weeps at the experiences that plow up our spirit. Jesus wept. When we were in college, we were introduced to Navigator's material and Dawson Trotman, who discipled all these swabbies, these Navy guys, and launched Navigators around World War II. And he developed a personal habit with them at night. It was called HWLW. And we'd all be trying to memorize scripture in the dorms. And, you know, so, we'd, so before he we went to bed, I, probably overcooked with piety, we'd say, All right, HWLW. There was always one guy that brought us back to earth, and somebody had uncorked with three or four verses they had memorized. It's like, oh, man, that's, you know, I don't, I don't got one that long. And so we'd try to spit out and remember something we'd memorized. And then there was always a wag who was always in. 
Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five, and then he'd go to bed. You know, that was the, the go-to verse. But quite more than sport for HWLW, oh, don't miss that the one who created everything that is and created us wept at the sorrowful things that we face in life. He wept. And beyond weeping, it says in the text, verse 33 and verse 38, he was deeply moved. This word's interesting. It's for a horse snorting. Upset. I don't know if you watch Kentucky Derby. I thought the Kentucky Derby winner was going to eat the horse that was uh, taking it after the race was over, you know, trying to get the horse settled down. Uh, the horse was snorting. Upset. In anguish. A horse snort. Well, Jesus feels the anguish that we feel, is moved by it, is a sympathetic high priest, sat where we sit in piles of grief. What did he do? Jesus wept. By the way, this belies the overcooked piety that when somebody dies, oh no, you know, I'm fine. Bless the Lord, they died. You know, I'm praise the Lord. I'm fine, I'm fine. Well, when Jesus faced it, he wasn't fine. He sat down and he wept, and it was all a natural part of grief. Certainly not sorrow without hope, but it was real sorrow, and it's substantial, and it's hard. Maybe you're grieving this morning. Death is not the end in Christ, and Jesus weeps with you. What a Savior. What a glory in knowing him. Now, the third conduit of our heart is this. The word of Christ brings life and awakens the dead. John eleven forty three, 43, Lazarus, come forth. Basil in the fourth century, an early father, had an interesting take on this. He said, it's sure a good thing that he used his personal name, Lazarus. If he would have just said, come forth, the legions would have walked out of the tomb because of the power of his word. But he distinguished that powerful command and his ability with the personal name of Lazarus. And he reached for him, Lazarus, come forth. I love that. I appreciated Jerry reading Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel sent out in a field. The army is not only decimated, dead. Their flesh has rotted and there's nothing left but their bones. And there they are. And God told Ezekiel to help him understand the power of the word of God to bring life. Get out there and preach to him. And he did. And the bones first joined together, then the sinews, then the flesh. And then the wind of God came and there was a stand-up army where there was once dry bones. That's the power of the word of God. Once Lazarus is lying there very dead. And then the word of God came forth. Lazarus, come forth. And he became very much alive. And in the same way, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. How shall they believe in him in whom they've never heard? And then the word of God came to us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the equivalent of Eric, come forth. And it wakes us up out of a stupor of self-reliance out of a stupor of rebellious sin that we're just calling, oh, I can live however I want. And God arrests us and wakes us up 
to realize that he sent Jesus so that we could have life and we could live with hope and die with hope. And he invites us to himself in faith and repentance. You ever heard someone sneeze real violently or something? And just It was really a loud blast suddenly coming spontaneously. And somebody else says, well, you're going to wake up the dead with that. Jesus woke up the dead with the power of his word. Here, we're, we're back to Genesis 1. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. The power of the word of God is the very first thing we come to understand about this God who in that point, Genesis 1, we cannot see yet. But the power of his word is proved effectual. And so it is with us. There is no spiritual life apart from the power of the word of God taken by the spirit of God to our hearts and it wakes up the dead. And we are dead until God wakes us up and then we are made alive through his word which is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword able to divide even the indivisible. One great property of the word of God is its life-giving, its life-engendering. This circumstance went from death to life through the presence of Christ and the declaration of his word. Finally, this window, this miracle that gets us to see the kingdom of God in his nature is to see that life in the kingdom is apart from the curse, apart from death, and it's full of life. But this window pointedly asks us whether or not we believe in Jesus. Come with me to John eleven twenty five and 26. These verses, in of all places, came forcibly home to me during Ronald Reagan's funeral. His funeral was at the National Cathedral. Senator John Danforth from Missouri, uh, a rector in the Anglican Church, held the service, and he comes walking in to the National Cathedral with these wonderful acoustics in front of the body of Ronald Reagan. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. He that lives and believes in me shall never die. And the nobility and the glory and the wonder of those words came forcibly to my spirit. That's who Jesus is. This is not only a resurrection from the dead. It's an experience of he who is the resurrection and the life. Jesus Christ, our Lord. When he finishes that declaration, he looks at Martha and he says this. Do you believe this? And that's the great question for us at the tomb of Lazarus this morning. By the way, when you get to verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. You've heard the phrase, boy, he made a believer out of me. There are many who went home with a different view of Jesus than they had when they went out to the cemetery. And it was the presence of Christ and the power of his word that called people to life. And he's still calling people to life with his presence here this morning and his call to repentance and faith. So I ask you, do you believe this? Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. 
Vincent van Gogh was a painter in the 19th century. He struggled with depression and despairing of life and was in and out of many mental asylums. In 1880, when he was in an asylum, he got a hold of an etching that Rembrandt made of the raising of Lazarus, and he decided to paint it. And you've seen his paintings before. They're all, what is it called? Now, I'm not very much of an art aficionado, impressionistic. I always wondered why they didn't make the brush and make it more vivid and clear, you know, and yet others find the real glory in it, but that's just, that's how Hilligan looks at great art, I guess, you know, but. There's this painting of Lazarus. You say, well, it looks indistinct. Okay, that's fine. Mary and Martha there with resuscitated Lazarus. But what you're missing is when he got to paint Lazarus, those who knew him recognized that he painted his face on Lazarus because he found in Lazarus a hope that he wanted to have for himself. Faith, relying upon Jesus Christ, one of our fundamental four R's, rely on Jesus, faith in Jesus. Why? Eric, what is that? That's painting our face on that's seeing in what he experienced what we want for our own lives as God awakens us to himself. Lazarus, come forth. And the world has never been the same and anticipated unknowingly that Easter morning when Jesus came forth, raised eternal. Heavenly Father, in what way do you want the word of God to chase down our hearts this morning? What is the Spirit of God saying to Calvary this morning? There may be those who feel like they're in a marriage that's dying. Lazarus, come forth. They maybe feel like they're on the front end of a disease pro process that's just beating them up. Lazarus, come forth. Maybe they're facing grief that's cutting them in half. And they need to hear Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth. Maybe they're just dead in trespasses and sin and you're waking them up. Give them grace to believe. Oh, what hope is found in Christ. We love you. We worship you. We need you. We're a dying lot in a dying world. Many of us holding on to a risen eternal Savior who is immortal brought us together to a living hope. Oh, Father, we celebrate that this morning. Hear us sing unto you. Let's stand and sing.